0: Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Yesterday, we had the alarming news, Matthew, that COVID cases in Victoria rose by more than 50% in one day, from around 950 cases a day to over 1,400. What happened? Well,
1: we know from the contact traces, Craig, that there was a trend in people flouting the stay-at-home rules and gathering for AFL grand final parties across the state of Victoria. And I will just quickly point out that those northern suburbs that had been previously generating high case rates, they actually went down. Their case rates went down. So it's, it's really now people in more affluent southern Suburbs of Melbourne who, for some reason, think they're immune from getting COVID that are largely the cause of that spike.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Matthew, being Sydney-based and also in lockdown, I'm acutely aware of, of course, how strict the Melbourne lockdown has been. So clearly some fatigue's kicked in. So how worried should we be about this spike?
1: Well, you're right, Craig, Victoria uh, has the most stringent lockdown rules in Australia and are among the toughest, in fact, in the world. They're costing the Australian economy $750 million a week, but importantly, the rising case rates pose a material threat to the Victorian health system. So with the number of people... In-hospital rising, the number of ICU beds due to COVID has now reached amber alert, level of 20% of capacity. So, you know, we're starting to
0: get worried. The news in New South Wales, Matthew, is only slightly brighter. New South Wales lockdowns are, of course, costing the economy a whopping $1 billion a week, but they appear to be yielding a decline in new COVID cases. New cases have moved below 1,000 to 941 a day. After reaching around 1,400 a day in the second week of September, Matthew, with New South Wales looking to reduce those lockdown restrictions in a couple of weeks, what might happen to COVID case rates and hospitalisation rates as these restrictions are reduced?
1: Craig, here, we need to really keep an eye on the ICU beds that are available because it's the restriction or the limitation on ICU beds that could lead to the uh, health system being overwhelmed. Now, New South Wales has 900 ICU beds available in the state but about 300 of those beds Craig are required for other illnesses and that leaves about 600 remaining for COVID patients now that 900 ICU beds could at a stretch be increased to 1500 beds according to the New South Wales Government by doing things like relocating the beds to locations such as operating theatres now we've done modelling on the impact of rising case rates on the ICU uh, capacity, And we completed our modelling on the assumption that the New South Wales ICU rates would need to remain under 600 to keep the system manageable. Now, what we found is that New South Wales will probably be able to keep within that limit, that 600 bed limit, under their reopening schedule, despite an expected rise in daily case numbers to around 5,000 by year end. Now, the reason for the lower hospitalisation rates and hence ICU rates, notwithstanding the climb in the case rates, is due entirely to the efficacy of the vaccines. So our modeling shows that the number of patients in ICU beds may reach somewhere between 400 and 500 by year end, but that's well below the 600 beds that would see the New South Wales system start to become overly stressed.
0: Yeah, really interesting, Matthew. So, you know, getting used to those sort of 5,000 a day case rates will be an interesting one for the population. Has your modelling considered the possibility for other states, such as, for example, Victoria, and how they would hold up if they followed this, same New South Wales roadmap?
1: Yeah, we have. But at this stage, it's very difficult to say how things will pan out, particularly in Victoria, given those spiking numbers. Now, Obviously, Victoria is on the cusp of losing control of its outbreak and overwhelming the health system, and obviously case rates are yet to peak. Even with current restrictions remaining in place, the Burnett Institute simulations suggest 24% of scenarios result in the Victorian health system being overwhelmed. If restrictions are eased in line with the announced Victorian roadmap at 80%, the proportion of Burnet Institute simulations that exceed hospital capacity rises from that 24% number to a very scary 63%, Craig. Our own modelling suggests that Victorian case rates would breach 4,000 per day by year end if they follow their roadmap and lower restrictions in mid-November. But more importantly, they would have around 400 COVID cases filling ICU beds, and that's slightly higher than their COVID ICU bed capacity, which is around 380. And that would force the Victorian government to find ICU beds outside ICU wards, which would stress further an already overburdened Victorian health system.
0: Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's incredible, Matthew. High vaccination rates are accepted now as the key to us living with COVID. New South Wales vaccination rates are now around two months ahead of the other states, Matthew. If all the states across Australia start to follow the same conservative path as New South Wales, which I believe is around reaching 90% vaccination rates before they fully reopen, when could we expect Australia to have open interstate borders?
1: Well, Craig, we would not expect them to open borders until 2022. But there are risks to even that rather pessimistic outlook, as it assumes vaccine take up rates will be higher or as high, I should say, in other states as they are in New South Wales, which may be unlikely, particularly for states that haven't experienced a severe COVID outbreak. I mean, your premier, Gladys Berejiklian used that fear of remaining in lockdown very successfully to enhance her vaccination rates in New South Wales. Now, if you look at outside of New South Wales, the Melbourne Institute estimates of vaccine hesitancy suggest less than 10% of adults are unwilling to be vaccinated in New South Wales and in Victoria for that matter. But in Queensland, 13% of adults are unwilling to be vaccinated and 10% are unwilling in WA. There also remains a large proportion of people still undecided about getting vaccinated in both Queensland and WA. But Matthew, 2022,
0: it's only three months away. It's it's not a big wait, is it?
1: No, Craig, it's not a big wait. The problem is if that vaccine hesitancy rate even increases marginally in Queensland and WA from those numbers, those two states may never achieve 90% vaccination rates.
0: There you go. The New South Wales Premier, Matthew, who you've mentioned a couple of times, has warned of a potential explosion in cases when she opens up New South Wales. The potential success of New South Wales models rely on high vaccination rates, as you've highlighted, effective contract chasing, but also isolation and quarantine measures to limit the impact on the health system internationally are there any examples that you're aware of Matthew that we can draw upon to benchmark this approach well Singapore's
1: the obvious example Craig Singapore is a population of around 5 million compared to around 8 million for New South Wales so roughly the same size and after effectively having a COVID elimination strategy until August. Singapore opened up with a vaccination rate of almost 80% of the total population. Now, cases had averaged around 40 per day, a very low number, over August. And we've seen that really explode to over 2,000 per day currently at the end of September. And it looks set to increase further, with the Singaporean health officials expecting daily cases to rise to around 6,000. The spike in cases is so far been accompanied by really effective test, trace, isolate and quarantine conditions that they have in Singapore. And that combined with the efficacy of the vaccine has resulted in a really low death rate and the number of people in intensive care remaining really low at around 30. Now, Singapore compared to us, has 80% of its total population vaccinated. That's important because that would translate to a vaccination rate of 90% of the population aged over 16, which is New South Wales target for full reopening. So we're going to graduate into that Singaporean number over time. But Singapore's problem really appears to be Not so much the number of people getting seriously ill, people in ICU beds is low, rather it's the large number of people presenting to hospitals with mild COVID symptoms, which is threatening to overrun their hospital system. That's caused them to reintroduce some restrictions. Now, The reason that that's the case is because there's a very long lag between people receiving notification of positive COVID tests because their testing tracing system is very efficient, but the the lag is between that and being sent to a COVID recovery
0: facility. You're listening to Craig Balanzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking you through the current economic analysis that's shaping your investment outlook. So, Matthew, I'd like to get further into this Singapore example. What lessons can we gain from having witnessed Singapore's approach? Firstly,
1: certainly expect a strong rise in case rates as we
0: open. Second, expect many
1: unvaccinated people to get seriously sick. Third, expect some vaccinated people to experience mild COVID symptoms. Particularly on that last issue, what we need to do is be able to facilitate home treatment for mild cases so we can keep our hospitals and health system free to treat what will be a rising number of largely unvaccinated uh, serious cases and the final lesson the most important lesson
0: get vaccinated Matthew couldn't agree more and a friend of mine in the UK who was double vaccinated did get COVID and it was the worst that we'd had so you can imagine at some point the fear of should I go to hospital should I not so some really good points there I want to bring it all together Matthew because At the end of the day, we're talking about some very big macroeconomic decisions being made here by state and federal government leaders. How should investors consider the possible impacts of these macro decisions to their valuation models?
1: Yes, well, Craig, we're in a world now of a lot of uncertainty. And the way to treat that uncertainty is to have a range of scenarios. The good thing about the uncertainty that we're under, if there's such a thing as a good thing to do with uncertainty, is that we know a lot about the potential scenarios from the type of modeling that institutes like Burnett and Doherty are doing. So having key scenarios around the central case in line with those potential outcomes that those institutes are signaling to us is going to be a key to how you navigate through the next couple of years as the COVID implications pan out. So What we're doing at QIC is we have our central case. We then have our scenarios. What we're doing as time goes by, as we move to different potential scenarios, as we're shifting the central case, and we're also shifting the probability around the outcomes as one scenario drops out, one scenario comes in. So this is a world where scenario analysis, I think, is really going to come into its own.
0: Yeah, highly insightful. Thanks, Matthew, for sharing that. So in summary, everyone has been caught out by the Victorian jump in daily case rates overnight, but with New South Wales looking to reopen in a few weeks with a highly vaccinated population, are these high daily case rates something we're just going to have to become accustomed to? Do our states also need to become more accommodative to living via their health system capacities? And does the Singaporean model provide us with a unique guide to potential outcomes in Australia with a population effectively living with COVID, but with a very low impact at the cost of human life? And finally, how will the state government's decisions around reopening their economies, the potential economic impact of this, influence our institutional investors and their portfolio positioning going forward? Matthew's highlighted the importance of stress testing. I'm Craig Balanzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.